Welcome to episode 122 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm Brittany Lombas. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in three separate locations in New Orleans, Louisiana. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Swamp Flicks. Ah. <laughs> I usually join you on that. I, I just like blanked out. That was a good. You gotta one, get though. into your um, wrestling character for yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. God, I wanted to like grab a steel chair, and I don't have one. Just bash it into <laughs> something. Logically, we probably should be doing some sort of Thanksgiving themed episode, considering when this episode's going to come out. But it's also Undertaker's retirement week, which, considering that that his goodbye segment was like forty minutes long, maybe that's still just going to go on for days and days and days. So we're still on theme, I think. So how old do you have to be to sort of retire from wrestling? Oh, you could go into your 60s. You could pretty much until your body gives out. Ric Flair's still taking bumps and he's 117. <laughs> yeah. How old is the... Un- I remember The Undertaker when I was like a kid. He's surprisingly young. He's still like in his 50s, I think. But his body <laughs> is old. in very bad shape. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, bless him. That's, I mean, it's not old, but it's old for someone who does like what they do. <laughs> I think James, what did you think of that? Goodbye. Cause it put me to sleep. I, I didn't think it was very good, but I actually okay. thought that that Roman Reigns drew McIntyre match. It ruled. It was like exactly what I want in wrestling. I want two charismatic, good looking, beefy men beating the shit out of each other, and there was so much mm. drama. And uh, I honestly think WWE's been killing it with their pay-per-views for at least the past, I don't know, six months since WrestleMania. Like, each pay-per-view, I don't really follow too much of the build going into it, and then I watch the pay-per-views, I'm like, damn, that was really good. I was very entertained. So I, I think they've like kind of hit their stride during the COVID era i really liked the cinematic like off-site matches a lot um i think the last really good one was money in the bank where they like fought to the top of the building that was cool to get the briefcase off the top floor um this past one the um survivor series i liked both of the full roster tag matches a lot which i think is more what i look for in wrestling is just like really over the top gimmickry where there's just a lot of like eccentric characters all at once and they each get their own like moment to shine i thought both of those matches were a lot of fun so i had fun watching that pay-per-view as well but um are you not into the roman reigns heel turn thing because i think it's the best thing that's happened in wrestling this year this heel turn has been magnificent it's everything i wanted out of roman reigns and more it's the best angle reigns has been involved in since the shield I don't think it's the best thing that's happened this year in wrestling because Bray Wyatt as the fiend against John Cena, where he crawled inside John and Cena's psyche and took him on a Lynchian tour of his own worst yeah. fears. That was fantastic. That's hard to top. Yeah, I, I do kind of agree. I'm saying it's like a, just as a character change, like especially with Roman Reigns, who people, including myself, were so bored with as a good guy. We're like, please, this guy screams heel. And then they finally do it, and it's masterful. And I don't know. It just made me giddy. 
It's like I was a little kid watching it again. And yeah. the same thing with Drew McIntyre. It's like the exact opposite. It's like, why is this guy a heel? Like, he's charismatic. He seems like a good dude. And they turn him face and it just works. And seeing the two of them face off against each other, it felt like the main event of like a WrestleMania to me. It was really good booking. And I mean, both Reigns and Cena having like actual interesting turns in their character this year is like so counter to how that company has been run since the early 2000s. Like It feels like a breath of fresh air creatively. Uh, So I agree with that part for sure. But yeah, overall, I, I yeah, I did enjoy Survivor Series. I, but yeah, the Undertaker thing felt kind of flat. The only moment that really got me was when that Paul Bearer hologram, hologram. <laughs> popped up. I was like, oh, that's really sad. But yeah, beyond that, it kind of sucks that he didn't get to retire in front of the fans, especially when so many WrestleManias were, you know, you just waited for that Undertaker entrance. And it, it sucks that he didn't get to retire in the same fashion, but I'm sure he'll get a hall of fame. Yeah. They'll induct him in the WWE hall of fame and he'll have a moment in front of the fans. So, so we'll see, but yeah, definitely end of an era. Yeah. He had a lot of better times to walk away. A lot more interesting matches. He could have walked off on instead of just a 35, 40 minute, like parade that he threw himself in an empty room, uh, which is what it felt like to me. But, um, so today we are going to be talking about pro wrestling, hopefully with more of a welcoming, less specific uh, to, uh, you know, an event or two details because Brittany is also on this fabulous Skype call we have going on right now and she does not watch wrestling week to week. I don't. So I, I don't I have no idea what y'all are talking about, but like I got it kind of. So. Well, that that's anytime... I don't know. I think it's such like kind of its own little subculture that, you know, when I find someone that likes wrestling, we start talking about it. We could just talk for hours. And then the people around us are just kind of like, why the hell are these two guys (laughs) going on and on about this like male soap opera? It's like me when I talk about Dragula. Yeah. Everybody's like, what? (laughs) There you go. Yeah. Same deal. No, I get it. But no, I mean... I totally understand it. And I think like what we're going to talk about today really highlights like how, how tight the wrestling community is. And hopefully we found some sort of middle ground, like a hook for you to be interested because usually these pro wrestling episodes, we do the show or me and James like sequestered off in a corner babbling about like a Christmas movie Hulk Hogan was in 30 years ago. So <laughs> oh my God. hopefully, hopefully uh, there was more to latch on to here for an outsider. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I guess we'll, we'll definitely probably talk about it more, but I just want to mention that I was up until like two 30 in the morning last night on your um, WWE login. Cause I couldn't stop. <laughs> yeah. What did you watch? Perfect. Um, I'm trying to remember all their names cause there's so many people, but I was really into um, the fiend. And I saw this one that I was so memorable where it was, I can't remember their name, but there's a girl with like these two. Alexa Bliss. Yeah. She's my favorite. And the Southern Belle. I hate her. (laughs) Yeah, me too. But it was her. And then like the fiend was kind of like coming through the speakers while Alexa Bliss was fighting. (laughs) And I just loved, and I, I loved the, um, the, 
with the pandemic they've got you know which i 100 percent know you guys know like just everybody zooming in the thunderdome yeah it's all the fans are on screens in the audience Um, but it seems so cool like it adds this like bizarre futuristic element that i dug a lot so um yeah i was just kind of really going into a black hole and and then i watched a couple of i was obsessed as a kid with sting so i was watching a couple of sting classics i fun story i had a black cat named sting after the wrestler and as i grew older and it became less cool to like wrestling i mean i gave into peer pressure and i was like yeah um sting like the lead singer of the police you know (laughs) that's what i named him after (laughs) i'm just really into tantric sex is all (laughs) right (laughs) it's more about tantric sex than wrestling so yeah (laughs) I highly recommend checking out The Fiend versus John Cena, which we referenced earlier. I mean, if you're at all into that character, I do think that it's like one of the best short films produced this year in any context, even outside of wrestling. It's so fun to watch. 100% going to check that out after this. (laughs) Yeah, I would say that and The Undertaker's match against AJ Styles at WrestleMania. Those two cinematic matches are probably, yeah, some of the best stuff to come out. The Boneyard Match. The Boneyard Match. Boneyard Match. Done. Speaking of cinema, what have y'all been watching lately besides wrestling? I've really not been watching a lot because, uh, you know, Real Housewives, it's, it's a big thing. You know, two episodes from the new Salt Lake City series came out last week and I watched them on repeat. But I have watched that new Hulu movie, Run. It's aight. Basically, it's ever since like the big Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose Blanchard case kind of like blew up. There's been this like really widespread fascination with like Munchausen by proxy. (laughs) So this movie is essentially that. So it's it kind of sucks because it's sort of this overplayed plot. You know, they had so many made for TV movies about this situation the you know the hbo documentary mommy dead and dearest and all that just so this kind of gets lost in that a little bit for me i guess because i'm like eh you know i i get it i know it's gonna happen but it does provide like a couple of cool twists that kind of go beyond that you know Dee Dee and gypsy rose blanchard story um that i thought were pretty fun just a, a, a pretty cool thriller with some some fun twists thrown in and good acting, some good acting. So it was pitched to me as a horror film starring someone who actually uses a wheelchair in real life, and like that being something you rarely see in in movies is like someone who's actually wheelchair user oh, playing someone not in a wheelchair. Someone. Oh, I didn't see. It. I didn't even know that. So yeah, so that was pretty cool. And also, I finally, finally, finally got around to watching Cats, <laughs> and. I freaking loved it. I couldn't finish it. I I rented really? it from Redbox like three, four months ago. And oh, man, I don't know. I got like three quarters of the way through and I just had to. How? I had to stop. <laughs> I, I, Brittany had a jellical ball. I had a jellical ball. I like. Yeah, I, I, kept I was asking singing. Hannah. I was like, what is a jellical cat? Like what? I didn't. I like didn't know anything about the original play. Or, the point is, like, no all cats are jellical <laughs> cats, and like, there's no like. What two- is a jellical cat? 
That's a, look, like, James. We all make our own jellical choices. Okay. What right. does this mean? I like the whole movie. That's basically what is. What is a jellical cat? It's just is, a fun like term that T. S. Eliot kind of came up with as he was creating all these little poems about what does it mean? Cats. It's what it sounds. I mean, to no, define like, jellical goes against the purpose of what oh, jellical is. <laughs> Well, th- this is like what my viewing experience was okay. like. <laughs> You're like, what like, is this? <laughs> what what are they is doing? this? Why? Do you know what you missed is after all of the auditions for the Jellicle choice at the end of the movie, after you've finally gotten through that gauntlet of cats introducing themselves and dancing, um, then <laughs> who's a Judy Dench? She mm-hmm. like stops the show to explain that cats are not like dogs. <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> and that's how it ends. <laughs> Is there like explaining that cats are not like dogs for a few minutes? While a a hot air balloon is going off into the sky, and they're in this gorgeous London backdrop. Well, they're on their way to the heavy side layer, of course. <laughs> I I just thought that the set was gorgeous, and I couldn't take my eyes off anything. I love all the songs from Cats, and I th- I thought everyone did a really good job with like the the new versions of it for this movie i did not like jennifer hudson's uh memory it was way too sappy and annoying and that's pretty much my only criticism i had a lot of fun i loved it i loved all the dance moves yeah you know you know i saw this in the theater oh god i should have regrets regrets the two teenagers in front of me, these two girls, um, were obviously on mushrooms because they were giggling like way too much. You know, kind of like sinister kind of giggling. And they also did not finish the movie. They walked out about um, 40 minutes in. They were like, we cannot do this. And they left. Well, you know what's funny is me and my buddy, we actually, we got stoned beforehand with the intention to go see cats. And then we got there and they had a big sign that said, all showing of cats have been canceled. The projector is broken. Oh no! <laughs> Which was just like <laughs> some That's sign, perfect. like I shouldn't. Uh, yeah, I'm not meant to see this movie. But you might like. So the Andrew Lloyd Webber Broadway production was so big that they like they filmed it, and it's available like on DVD and like VHS. I used to rent it at the library all the time. So like, if you didn't like Cat Cats the movie, you might like that. I mean, they I'd... look way scarier on Broadway. I'll tell you that. They look more like demon like on in Broadway. Oh, so boy. um yeah, so <laughs> um what, ha- what what have you been watching James? <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Supermarket Sweep. Um, oh, are you is it the new one with Leslie Jones? One. Oh, fabulous. It's I so like good. it a lot. It's super fun. Mm-hmm. It's not a movie, but I just <laughs> been watching the shit out of it. I like it because the price I mean they could win a crap ton of money. Like I remember like OG Supermarket Sweep. It was like, yeah. oh, you won like a hundred dollars and a toaster oven. You know what I mean? But they're winning like big bucks. And I, it's like this show is easy. And well, I was thinking like it's easy because of how much we're used to advertising and marketing mm-hmm. in capitalism. That like <laughs> supermarket sweep is such an easy game. Like, of course, I recognize that brand or, or that, that logo. logo. <laughs> yeah. But when I watch Jeopardy, I just feel like a complete moron. <laughs> So I've been watching that. Um, as far as movies, though, so my girlfriend's birthday, Hannah, it was her birthday last Saturday. Ooh. So we went to uh, this 
new-ish restaurant uptown called Blue Giant. Oh, I love Blue and Giant. And they do, they do like American-style Chinese food. And I did not like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I've only had like well, uh, some dumplings there, and they were pretty good. So. Yeah. Well, okay. I want to go on a little rant, because I actually think their appetizers and their like starter, you know, the egg rolls, the crab rangoon, all very, very good. I get it. Because like the main dishes to me look like when I was looking at them, I'm like, it just looks like buffet food that I could get for like five bucks. Right. And it's like, so their special that night we went was Mandarin Chicken, which there was this restaurant out in Kenner growing up called Fong's that had the best Mandarin Chicken. So I was so excited. It's like, oh, hell yeah, Mandarin Chicken. I, it comes out and it was just like pathetic. Like there was no <laughs> thick gravy that I'm over the this crispy chicken. It was like, and then we get the bill, and it's like a hundred dollars. Oh I'm god! Like, oh my god! We just paid a hundred dollars for American style Chinese food, and it's like we only paid that for that like hipster prestige, prestige, because it's like white dudes with tats cooking yummy, 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 yummy food, <laughs> and it it just pissed me off. Like I was actively angry. <laughs> well, at least you know you have the you can share this with the world now. Yeah, and, and again, it was it was fine. But as I'm eating, I'm like, oh, I just want Fong's. So anyway, I found the actual Fong's recipe online that night for their Mandarin chicken. Apparently, they posted it on the wall, and someone took a picture of it. And so that next day, I made their Mandarin chicken, and it was better than Blue Giants. It was so delicious. <laughs> just what I wanted. Wow. But, Anyway, this is leading to something. So I hope this goes on for another 20 minutes before we get to a movie. This well, no, because I'm getting ready to be like, oh, well, let me tell you about this Chinese restaurant, too. Like, No, there's great I'm, Chinese restaurants. I'm going to stop. But I will say Wishing Town and Metairie. Oh, Try Wishing them. Town? Fabulous. I've been there. It's good. It's so good. good. James it, grew up off of um, off of Williams, though, which has like some of the best like Asian oh, food in the well, city. They do. Is, so Fong's was on Williams. Am I correct? Yeah. And the... There was a news story the other day where, or not the other day, but like a few years ago, where one of the owners, this old Chinese woman, burned down a rival restaurant like across the Whoa. street, like literally committed arson and went to jail. Apparently, Fong's is still around though. Wow. And I don't know. It just, that's like a very fond memory of my childhood is like getting Mandarin chicken at Fong's. So, anyway, so this thing happened at Blue Giant and. We're walking back and we start talking about like, oh, these hipsters charging $100 for just American style Chinese food. And Hannah brings up this documentary, The Search for General Toes. I don't know. Oh if, my God. If you've seen I saw this. that years um, ago. Yeah. And like, I forgot about it. Got it got me too. thinking because like General Toes is one of those things where like every single American Chinese restaurant you go to, that is like, one of the main things on the menu that everyone gets. So the documentary sort of explores like, where did this dish come from? They go over to China and no one's heard of it. They're like, <laughs> what is it? Like we don't, and it, it's not even palatable to them. They're like, Oh, this is like way too sweet. So it's kind of in search of that answer, but it also explores like Chinese immigration and how they were forced to kind of, 
dispersed around the country. And one of the only ways that they could economically sustain themselves was to open a restaurant. And it's interesting. They had to basically adapt the recipes they knew to like an American palate. Because the American palate, we like stuff a little sweeter. Mm. And, you know, and also like there's some stuff that they like seafood and certain parts of animals that they cook in China that Americans are like sort of repulsed by. And so they had to adapt these recipes and it kind of, it, it was a really interesting history about not only like Chinese food in America, but just like Chinese immigration. And um, it was just very interesting after our blue giant experience to kind of learn <laughs> the history of American style Chinese food. Yeah. And it's like a short little hour, 20 minute documentary and it's super uh, entertaining and informative. So yeah, if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's, nice. it's cool. Um, I like that you spite watched a movie and you spite cooked. That That's a powerful meal. <laughs> Lots of spite. Spite and spice. Well, we, we did. So we made Mandarin chicken the one night and then the next night we did uh, General Toe's recipe and it was like absolutely delicious. Now in this Mandarin chicken, do you put lettuce? Yep. You do a Sweet. bed of lettuce, you bread and fry, you know, deep fry the chicken. And then the sauce is what I found interesting. It, the sauce is made from like a roux. Like mm-hmm. you're basically making a gravy, but you're adding in, you know, there is like some MSG in there mm. and some browning liquid and some other little like, Sweet. I guess, secrets or whatever, but. It was absolutely delicious. I did almost set the kitchen on fire, but that's <laughs> worth it. I, worth it. Well, I got my my roux was like way way too hot, and then I put in the like room temperature liquid, and oh just damn, a, yeah, a giant flame just shot up. But it, you know, no biggie. You're pulling a f- a fong, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's what that's called <laughs> when you burn stuff down. <laughs> but anyway, that that that's pretty much it. The only movie that really has stuck out recently it sounds like that meal has dominated your life recently so that makes sense i've been doing a lot more chinese food in the past week <laughs> i'm like these fucking hipsters char- oh my god they the vegetables like you know how you normally get a combination platter you get your rice your veggies an egg, an roll, egg roll and your entree everything is priced separately there so your oh. entree is 15 vegetables is another 10 to 15 your rice is another 10 to 15 like oh my god paying 50 dollars for chinese food this is insane you're about to cut a promo in this restaurant i'm gonna come down there and i'm gonna show you how to cook mandarin chicken (laughs) that's it that's it uh you've saved me money i will say it because you know i've i've tried them and i'm like oh i love because i've just had appetizers and they were all just get the appetizers yep oh but yeah I, you know, and I had a gut feeling when I saw what other people were getting. I'm like, that looks like I could get better at Dragon King. <laughs> totally. So, good Go deal. to Dragon King. <laughs> well, what about you, Brandon? Well, I'm in my best of the year catch up mode right now. So I'm watching a lot of 2020 movies, mostly stuff that's free to stream, but I've been trying out a couple 
VOD rentals in there as well, which is always ill-advised because it's like extra pressure. It's like, I spent five bucks on this. It better be fucking good. You know, <laughs> kind of like expensive Chinese food. <laughs> does it influence your ratings a little bit? It where does. You're like, and yeah. <laughs> honestly, I hate this time of year because I'm like, especially when I rent something. So I'm like both thinking in my head, like, is this best of the year worthy? Which what a dumb fucking question. And then also like, <laughs> is this worth the $5 I spent when it'll probably be free in a few months? Also a dumb question. Um, so it's totally not fair to the movies. Well, I did happen to catch two good ones. Um, one of them was on Britney's dime, which was great. Uh, she lent me her HBO credentials Initially, I thought you set up a little account for me, which I thought was very cute. Because when I signed in, there was a Brandon account. I forgot that's your brother's name as well. It's my brother. <laughs> saw, you probably like. Oh, I this saw is a bunch nice. of like Family Guy episodes on there. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, he's like very into. He recently watched like Drive for the first time, and he's like neo noir is life and yes. Ryan Gosling. So you probably might have seen a lot of that. I can't as disagree well. with that. <laughs> that's so funny but yeah feel free to make another brandon account <laughs> brandon too <laughs> well i did um use that eight temporary hbo access to watch american utopia i'm only really bringing this up because i think it relates to our last episode when we were talking about movies about the 2020 election cycle this is a david byrne concert um it's very much a sequel in spirit to the Talking Heads Stop Making Sense oh, it was, documentary. Wasn't that directed by Spike Lee? Yes, it was. Oh, I wanted to see that. It is a documentary of the, um, or it's like a concert film of the American Utopia tour, which I saw at Jazz Fest. It was like a shortened version of it without the um, narration bits. Like he kind of does these like Laurie Anderson lectures in between the songs. Um, so the Jazz Fest version didn't have that, but it was the same setup. Like there's a lot of this stark choreography with a bunch of like barefoot people on stage wearing matching suits and everyone's like exuberantly happy uh and when i saw that at jazz fest i was dancing and crying at the same time which is a very weird sensation that has only happened to me a couple times in my life (laughs) the movie had a lot to live up to because of that it was like well i had such a great experience seeing this in person like how can the movie capture that and i don't think it necessarily does like it doesn't capture the feeling of being there but it is a good document of this like very political, idyllic tour that they went on. Where David Burns like looking at America right now, and sort of like trying to see the good in it, and trying to like see this moment of change that we're in as something that could be positive on the other end. And after watching all those like election satires we talked about last episode, this was a much more hopeful, like bright you know, optimistic assessment of where we're at right now, which if you like uh, what he did in true stories, which was kind of like looking at nineties mall culture, America and like small towns in the same way. uh, This is definitely from the same brain. Like just the way he looks at everything from like a remove, like an outside observer is really great. And like positively reaffirming. It's like a child's eyes view of like this country's good parts and what those can be. But it also ends in like a protest song. He like covers this Janelle Monáe song where they say the names of people who have been executed by the police, like Michael Brown and Emmett Till and people like that over the decades. So yeah, it's it's really hefty politically and very direct in its politics, but also very hopeful and like, I mean, Spike Lee sort of sits back on a lot of it. You wouldn't tell that he directed it except for when the movie kind of goes for the jugular on the politics and he like kind of brings out 
his sort of like Spike Lee-isms. So I, it's very much worth looking at. That sounds great, dude. I, I'm yeah. going to watch that immediately. And the other one I caught up with that I thought was worth mentioning is more related to today's episode. It is this film called Spree. It features one of the Stranger Things kids. He is in a Uber-type car. Uh, it's called a Spree, so as not to get sued by Uber or Lyft. <laughs> um, and he is filming himself from every angle in the car on multiple GoPros. And he is desperate to get famous on like live stream twitch instagram type social media platforms like he really wants digital online clout and he's been trying to do this for like 10 years uh, the film's presented as this like documentary where he's just getting more and more desperate for people to pay attention to him online and where the movie finds him is on this day that he snaps and decides to kill people for fame of course this sounds very much my type of thing and it and it is like this kid online murdering people for social media cloud and it jumps platforms like some parts of it are instagram posts some of it are uh shitty like youtuber influencer sketches like kind of making fun of that culture especially this kid like that that cloying please pay attention to me youtuber bullshit is like what the movie's mostly lampooning and the way it starts he like poisons people with like poison water bottles and you're like ah that's kind of a boring way to kill people on this like youtube stream and then it it escalates where he's like violently murdering people in these like bloody messes and you're like oh the movie wanted me to see more violence like it wanted me to get hyped for like bloodshed and it was kind of like wagging its finger at me a little bit about that so it's a really fun satire in that way uh, the reason I bring it up in the context of this episode is because David Arquette plays his dad. Oh, wow. Uh, and we're going to be talking about David Arquette this whole episode. He plays this kid's dad, and he's just as pathetic. He's like this like go-nowhere DJ in Los Angeles who like can't get any gigs and is just like past his prime and sort of like still living out this, like, I'm going to be famous someday fantasy. And just like pathetic. And I just thought it was really cool to see him in a like low-budget genre movie. Um, and apparently he's been in a few recently. He's been acting more lately, which, which is great because uh, I'm becoming a David Arquette Mark uh, this year. Me too, man. Me too. Same. <laughs> same. Wow. We're going to have to do more uh, David Arquette episodes. <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to see him in like a over the top hype concept thriller, and if you like those like unfriended style techno horrors the way I do or at least a fraction of the way I do um, Spree is surprisingly fun we are talking about specifically David Arquette's professional career as a wrestler not as an actor as a wrestler but they are related they are related of course those two art firms have a lot of overlap I kind of want to like tell a story with this episode like how he got involved in the industry and where he is today so we're going to kind of mess with the format a little bit because we're only really talking about two movies, but there's a lot to talk about in both of them, I think. Yeah, there's a larger narrative that I think it would probably be better to cover chronologically. I, I agree. So, yeah, let's jump into it. And all that's coming up to you right now, brother. Oh, brother. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, it was almost a lot to handle to see David at this point where, you know, I was on Friends and... 
everything was feeling pretty good with our careers, and all of a sudden he wants to start wrestling. It was kind of insane. I remember feeling embarrassed because he was just, there's nothing small about the way he embraced wrestling. World heavyweight champ, baby. So David Arquette appears to be a genuine wrestling fan, which is likely how he got cast in this movie Ready to Rumble in the year 2000, which was as into being in the wrestling arena. Like how he got into the profession of pro wrestling was through Ready to Rumble. This was after he was already famous from the Scream movies as a sort of like goofball side character. He was cast as a wrestling fan in this like gross out comedy as a goofball. Uh, Him and his buddy in the film are huge marks for this wrestler, Jimmy King, played by Oliver Platt in the film, believe it or not. God. Uh, he's kind of like a Jerry Lawler type maybe with a little Ric Flair thrown in he's like a wrestler who's like past his prime and like an old fashioned face in the company like I guess (laughs) it's hard to tell well I'm just saying like you had access to all these real wrestlers I guess I don't understand why go with Oliver Platt I think it went with the fun of it, like the comedy, maybe. Or maybe they didn't want any of their superstars to like, because, you know, his backstory is he like Horrific. has yeah abandoned <laughs> his family. He's an alcoholic. He's a slob. Like, you don't want DDP or Goldberg in that role. So I guess it kind of makes sense that you have the surrogate to play this loser. I think it shows also just like a lack of respect for the charisma of the talent like it's almost like you can't handle being the lead in a film we're gonna hire a professional actor to come in and you can play side characters yeah so this is a wcw vehicle like wcw at its height of popularity because it was at war with wwe and lost that war in the late 90s and early 2000s this is when wrestling was like a household thing like it was like less embarrassing for a short minute there to be a fan of this because everyone was watching it well one thing i will say to that though is i think this movie came out in what the year 2000 yes so this is actually with wcw when they were on the decline where they i think they went out of business within a year of this movie coming out so to me, it didn't really feel like a we're on top, you know, we can make movies now and show off our superstars. It was sort of a last ditch effort to gain relevancy back with the that mainstream really audience. really helps me put this in perspective because I kept like I liked wrestling when I was like around like seven and eight. And I'm like, how did I not know this movie? You know what I mean? And it could be I was trying to like figure out like what year my wrestling youth fandom was so i think it was probably before this then see my assumption was that it was greenlit because wrestling was so popular and like put into production for like a 24 million dollar like it's like a mainstream gross out comedy like kind of like an american pie style like mainstream comedy it was put into production because wrestling was a viable product and then by the time it reached the screen, what, like a year or two later, you know, from being greenlit to being completed right. and distributed, at that time, WCW was already waning a little bit. And the failure of the movie, along with other 
promotional gimmickry from the people running the show, which we'll definitely get into. Yes. Um, is what put the company out of business. Yeah. So apparently less than a year after this came out, WCW was acquired by WWE. And basically just turned them into a library, like dismantled their talent pool and uh, absorbed all of their like back tapes. So yeah, this really did signal the death of WCW looking back on it. And it does feature a lot of like cameos from people who were involved with the company. Like Sting is a featured cameo here. Goldberg has a couple scenes. Macho Man Randy Savage and his like weird goatee phase. You have Booker T in the background, Mean Gene Okerlund, John Cena briefly appears in a gym, which is very odd. And Diamond Dallas Page in particular plays a major role as like the heel. He is like the foil to Oliver Platt's Jerry Lawler type face for the company. Which doesn't make any sense. Just It does not. Because DDP was like one of the biggest faces in WCW. And when David Arquette started showing up on regular WCW programming, he formed an alliance with DDP as a face. Yeah. So it's, it's strange. The consistency is off and the movie can't decide a few things. It like can't decide whether or not wrestling is real and it can't decide whether or not liking wrestling is cool. Um, the two main characters of this film, David Arquette and his buddy who I don't not remember the actor's name and I don't think it really matters. They are losers. They they like work for like a shit sucking company. They like run the vacuums that clean up porta potties and they love the smell of shit. And they like eat sandwiches like while next shit to, like, is like stripping. <laughs> and oh. they hit on girls while they're still caked in shit. Like they're just like <laughs> filth pigs. You could not write bigger losers than these two characters. <laughs> And the movie's like making fun of them. Like one of them's like, would a loser have tickets to Monday night nitro? And the hot girl they're hitting on is like, yes, a loser would have tickets to Monday night nitro. (laughs) That's what's so strange about this. It's should have been for the fans. Like, Hey, get to watch your favorite wrestlers in a movie. But then it like belittles them and says, you're a bunch of dumb marks. And there's also this classist element where it's saying you're like a bunch of rednecks essentially white trash, which is like the worst stereotypes about wrestling fans. And the movie plays into that a hundred percent. And they're also made fun of for um, defending wrestling for being not fake. Like David Arquette shrieks like wrestling's not fake, like a baby whenever someone suggests it. And it's not like a modern take on that where it's like, you know, there's a lot of physical artistry that goes into it. It's like the Endings are predetermined, but it really takes a lot of like bodily physique and like. No, it's art. like this character, the king, is literally a king. Yeah, he's like their hero. And the movie knows that wrestling is predetermined um, the way that any stage play would be. The matches have choreography to them that are determined ahead of time. But it also plays at central conflict where um, Oliver Platt's character has to defeat his opponent diamond dallas page in the ring legitimately like most of the matches are shoot matches where they're like actually beating each other up in the ring for like real glory so like the movie's kind of divided on like whether it wants the audience to know that wrestling is not 100 percent on the level or whether or not it wants to invite the audience in as like seeing this as like a cool product yeah and i think it's such a 
huge contrast to a movie that came out, I think the year before, a documentary called Beyond the Mat, which is mostly WWE guys, but it presents it like, okay, you get to see the behind the scenes stuff, but you end up gaining more respect for the performers. You're like, oh my God, like they're really putting their bodies on the line. And it, you know, it shows you them talking about the match beforehand, but then you see the after effects and it's done such better where it like respects the business and kind of shows you what goes on behind the scenes. And this is like some weird, like, like you said, it doesn't quite know how it feels about professional wrestling. It's like this company hired writers who don't watch wrestling to promote its product. And what they got back was like this sort of like thing that it's at at war with itself. It's both glorifying WCW is like the coolest thing in the world and also making fun of anybody who watches it, which is a very like self-conflicted mode. Wow. Um, And most of the movie too is like not even in the arena. Like most of it is like this gross out road trip comedy between these two bros that isn't anywhere near a wrestling ring. So I think that's where Brittany kind of comes in here. Like one of the reasons I wanted her to watch this uh, besides the fact that I think the David Arquette storyline in and outside the ring is interesting, and I think we'll have a lot more to get into there. I know that she likes that like Adam Sandler style of like gross out humor from around this time. So before we like get in any further into the minutia of like how this works as a wrestling movie, watching this for the first time, Brittany, because um, you're you are the only one of us who hasn't seen this before. Does this work as a gross out comedy for you? Like, did you find this funny or? entertaining in any way yes i i liked it a lot Um, (laughs) it reminded me so much i I don't know it was like if if dumb and dumber and freddie got fingered like sort of combined um (laughs) which i don't know i laughed a lot because i don't know like i think it's funny whenever idiots scream and david arquette did that a lot and i will always laugh at anything dealing with shit so i was in tears at parts in the beginning so as like this like very you know crude humor stupid film uh, yeah I loved it and I really liked you the conversation that you and James were kind of having about that like wrestling perspective because I'm, I was watching this and in my mind I was kind of like you know this must be a movie that was made for wrestling fans because it seems to like grasp some humor like it almost seemed like it was like hey we're making fun of you so you can laugh at you. It really didn't feel like it was a movie that was going to make anyone a wrestling fan after watching it. So in my mind, I'm like, it has to have been made for wrestling fans. So I get what you guys are saying. (laughs) I think there's like some truth to the fact that liking wrestling is not cool. Like it is kind of a nerdy niche interest. And it kind of felt like they were getting at that. I mean, they were doing it in like a a, a shitty way, but (laughs) it kind of like, you know, yeah, we're, this is our weird thing and we're going to defend it. And like the whole idea of them, like going to all those lengths to get the King back on his throne, you know, like only like a true fan would do that. And I think that like people kind of who are into wrestling probably understood why they were doing that and their passion 
for it. I think what's sort of insulting about it, though, is like, okay, this was the year 2000. And like this idea that there's fans out there that still think it's real. Adult fans. Adult fans, like in their 20s and 30s who think it's real in the 2000s is so insulting. Like this is post Montreal screw job, you know, which is like a famous incident of backstage politics kind of playing out in which the Which is ring. kind of referenced in the movie to be fair. Yeah, it is actually. That's kind of like the central conflict, you know. Yeah. He gets screwed over by this promoter and but to think that fans especially at that age would think that it's still real is pretty insulting. I mean, but do you think they were doing it to like poke fun at it? Cause they were both like idiots. Like, I don't know. Like it's, it's muddled for me. I don't know what mm-hmm. the intention was. Cause it's kind of like everyone was in on the real deal, except for these two guys. And I don't know if it was like, they were just supposed to be like two stupid dudes, <laughs> not necessarily like two wrestling fans. I don't know. Well, so there, there's a term called kayfabe, which is pretty much like mm. at all times you have to keep up the appearance that this is like real. Like you never show your cards and say that they're working off of a script or it's predetermined. And like fans buy into that too. And especially in 2000, like everyone knows it's scripted, but we still enjoy it. Like we enjoy any other show that's scripted. So the way it like, plays around with kayfabe is like very weird. I think reality television is a good parallel to that. Like nobody watches reality television thinking they're watching like a documentary. Like, you know, it's a performance and like people are performing for the camera. Um, even though there are real things about it, like there are aspects of wrestlers lives and like actual personalities that are just like heightened for your entertainment on the screen. And that's what the buy-in is like, you know that you're watching a packaged version of a person, but it's like heightened to like superhero levels of like artifice. And they don't get that. (laughs) They're just like so dumb that they don't see past the, just the surface level part. And I, I do think the movie like panders a little bit to kind of that working class sensibility in a way. Like they do have like kind of like shitty jobs and like, there's kid <laughs> rock songs on the soundtrack and people wear like insane clown posse and like Eminem t-shirts and stuff. Like it feels like it's, you know, a Hollywood movie deliberately aimed at like Southern working class communities. So I don't know. It, it's going to be a little insulting. I, I will say though, I think I've only really been talking about the film in this broader, you know, where does it fit in? How does it approach wrestling and, satirize wrestling or whatever but i will say i don't think this movie is good but the martin landau stuff he plays this like basically Stu hart this like yeah it's the dungeon the dungeon this wrestling coach every single scene he's in i laugh i don't know i found that stuff incredibly entertaining and funny just martin landau like beating up sid vicious and perry saturn I wish there was like a little bit more of him. And that feels like it's geared specifically towards wrestling fans. Like if you don't know who Stu Hart is, that character's not going to mean anything to you really. I mean, it's still going to be funny, but it doesn't have like a specific cultural context. He did not mean that much to me. So. Really? I'm like, I just thought, even if you don't know that, I thought his stuff was the funniest parts of the movie for me. 
I gotta say, I've seen this movie a few times. I don't hate it. I think it's like pretty fun. I do lose that feeling over time while watching it. Like the first like 15, 20 minutes, I'm always like, this is great. There's that scene where David Arquette has a uh, brain freeze at the Circle K or whatever corner store he's like loitering at. And he like wrestles Dweezil Zappa inside of the convenience store. With and, like Macho Man, Randy ring. Savage. Like it's yeah. surreal. That scene is great. I'm like, this is great wrestling mark bullshit. Like this is like really fun. And then when they leave the like wrestling context behind and sort of go on this like road trip outside of that context, then it just becomes kind of a mediocre 2000s comedy to me. Um, But when it comes back to the big WCW finish, like the big pay-per-view finish with the three tiered cage match and like all these like wrestlers from that time come back. That's when I like get back into it. I'm like, Oh yeah, this is fun again. I would, I would agree. I think that's, yeah, I found the beginning and the ending pretty strong. And I found the stuff with Martin Landau to be very funny. And I think beyond that, there were a few jokes that did land for me. Although I don't know how I feel about the, the scene where they crash their septic truck and then the toilet paper <laughs> truck comes right behind it. Like it's so awful. It's very funny. <laughs> I don't. There were some laughs in here. Like it's not a bomb. Like for me, it's not a zero star movie. It's like a one to two star. I gave it three stars on Letterbox when I first reviewed it five years ago, and I stand by that rating. I think it's like a three star time capsule movie. That's a strong rating for a film like this. Three out of five. I don't know. I think that's fabulous. No, I I hold. I would give it four. <laughs> oh wow. I knew you would like this somehow. I, like, I really I, liked it. <laughs> and I liked it even more as we delved more into the meaning behind it, which I knew nothing, nothing of this. I assumed that David Arquette was a wrestler prior to his acting career before we did this. Okay. So I was blown away. <laughs> okay. So David Arquette in the like mid nineties to early two thousands, was a millionaire. <laughs> he was in a bunch of comedies and like became like a famous person. Like we don't know his name because of anything he's done recently. We know his name because he was already famous by the time this happened. He was married to someone on Friends for fuck's sake. Like he did not need to be into wrestling. But he was genuinely into it. Like he was like a fan of the sport and wanted to be involved in it um, and used Ready to Rumble as his in WCW at the time, it was a Ted Turner product and it was being run by these two men, Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo, who were like the two creative drivers of the promotion. And they were sort of known for gimmicks. Like they wrote these like high concept gimmicks where you bring in celebrities or like over the top concepts for matches to steal ratings away from WWE. Well, and I think another big element as it relates to Ready to Rumble is the erasing of kayfabe, where there were angles where Vince Russo, as the writer of the show, he was the writer, would come onto TV and say, they had angles where, like, I wrote the finish to this Bill Goldberg match, and he went against the script. You know, stuff like that where it's... Like, basically breaking wrestling. Like, breaking it, 
you know, it, this was also the internet age where like people were online and a lot of what gets posted online is about wrestlers' personal lives, not just the characters they portray, but what happens backstage. And Vince Russo, in a way it was smart, was trying to bring that to the product. Like, okay, they know it's pre-written, whatever, there's writers, storylines, so how do we blow that up? How do we get ratings? And for him, it was to completely expose the business and to break all kayfabe. And a lot of people would say that that is what ultimately killed WCW. Well, from what I can tell, Ted Turner wanted a wrestling promotion, right? That was his baby. And he hired these two guys as Hollywood producers and writers to script this show. But I don't think of them as wrestling guys. That's not their entertainment form of choice. So like for them to come in as outsiders and like break the rules of the format, it can be really exciting for these like over the top gimmicks, but I don't think of them as like wrestling marks. Like they don't really have a respect for the art form as it is. The problem is like Vince Russo, he was the main writer during WWE's big attitude era boom. He was all about salacious storylines and kind of over the top violence and sex and and that worked in the 90s but you know he kind of rubbed people the wrong way and WCW acquired him but he had been in the wrestling business for a good decade you know but I don't think he loved professional wrestling in that way I think he came from it like just like any other writer for like a TV show or whatever exactly hey, how do we pop ratings how do we get this little jump in the Nielsen ratings, whatever. And same thing with Eric Bischoff. I don't, he's just a producer. Like, I don't, I don't think he has any ties to wrestling really other than he liked being on TV and that was an easy way to do it. Right. That that's the image is like, they didn't really care about these kind of sacred aspects of the wrestling art form. They just wanted to, you know, get the ratings as high as possible. And of course, uh, ready to rumble and bringing David Arquette, onto TV and eventually, as we'll get to, making him champion seem like good short-term business decisions, which ultimately, looking back, are completely antithetical to everything that wrestling is supposed to be about. And the thing is that like bringing a celebrity on TV to promote wrestling is not... It's fine. That's not the this cardinal sin that was committed here. That happens all the time. As far back as like Cindy Lauper, like promoting like the first WrestleMania, like that's just something that's happened in wrestling as long as it's been on like national television, if not earlier than that. It's it's great easy promotion to bring in a celebrity, especially if they're promoting something. Like fucking Drew Carey was in like a, a Royal Rumble match one time as a contestant. Oh my God. It's good for an easy way to get the crowd excited. You don't have to be good at wrestling. You just have to be recognizable for people to like be happy to see you there. Well, the, the writing has to be smart. You know, like with Drew Carey, yeah. he comes into the Rumble and then Kane, this monster, is the next person in the rumble and he just nopes the fuck out of there. Yeah. He leaves like a coward, <laughs> which is great for a Hollywood actor to yeah. do in a wrestling. It match. is funny and it's well-written and it works, but you don't want to make drew Carey your world heavyweight champion. And that's what Vince Russo did. He wrote it so that David Arquette is in a tag team match 
teamed up with Diamond Dallas Page, who was the villain of Ready to Rumble. But in this context, in an actual like on the air Monday night match, they are tag team partners. And DDP does all the work and actually like defeats the opponents uh, single handedly. And then David Arquette comes in at the last moment and gets the pin and is declared the world heavyweight champion of this company. And wrestling fans were pissed. And I find it fucking hilarious. <laughs> the fact that people are still mad about it is really I funny have to me. A question on how this all works. So like I guess like the whole like y'all are saying it's called like tag team where and I picked up on that where DDP was just kicking ass and like Dave Arquette was just kind of slithering around like a snake in the background. Is there a reason that whenever he got the belt that it didn't also go to DDP or did, would he have had to grab the belt physically? It's because there's only one belt. It wasn't for the tag team title. It was four people wrestling for a single belt for the world heavyweight championship, which doesn't make much sense storytelling wise. And they should not have done that. That's just bad storytelling. Oh dude. If you watch some, there's a few WCW pay-per-views from the last year they were in business that are so screwy with these sort of gimmicks where like no one understands what the rules are. How does someone win? I mean, there's a pay-per-view where someone's mom, Buff Bagwell's mom is on a forklift. Judy (laughs) Bagwell on a forklift match. How do you win that match? Yeah. And I, I do love it too, to some degree, but it's a fun exercise to just watch the last year WCW was in business and just watch their pay-per-views, it's all that sort of stuff. My personal favorite is, I think from 1990, so like a whole decade before this, um, RoboCop was in a cage. Oh, well, that was Sting cool. had to let him out. That was cool. I Fucking great. That. Yeah. I love, like you, you were saying at the top of this episode um, that you really respect the like Roman Reigns storytelling like long-term character development and like that's what you love about wrestling i have to admit that most of what i love about wrestling is this kind of vince russo gimmickry this like sort of like over the top attention grabbing surrealism but i will say that too much candy will make you sick like he he threw so much at the screen that like it kind of became meaningless after a while but I, i do love this kind of like absurdism that you will not not see in any other entertainment media well and i think like when he was in wwe it they kind of kept him in check like that style works great but you have to have balance and when it goes completely just balls to the wall that this is what it is then yeah the audience kind of isn't interested anymore you haven't built up any characters that people care about the matches don't make sense you've broken all sense of like kayfabe and then yeah the product just sucks but the level that people were mad at this gimmick that david arquette was the world heavyweight champion for two weeks like his entire title reign was two weeks long people have been mad about that for literal decades now and like still pass it around as like one of the low points of the medium which to me is ridiculous because it's like, where else will something that ridiculous happen? Like, wh- where else will you see something like that? 
I don't know. Like, I, I'm not mad about it. I, f- I find it amusing. Like, it's part of the quirkiness? Exactly. I think in a larger context, like, I don't know. If WWE at this point decided a celebrity wins the title in some fluke for a week to boost ratings, I, I don't think we would hate on it necessarily. But in this context of this company that has a long history of legitimate Hall of Famer, you know, you got Harley Race and Ric Flair's and Sting. And then in the last year, it's in business. It gives the title to David Arquette <laughs> for a few weeks. To promote a fucking movie that no one liked. To promote a fucking movie. And then it whimpers. <laughs> it dies within like eight months. Yeah, I think that's what ultimately like left a sour taste in people's mouths. It is also worth noting what you were just saying that like not only were they doing these over the top gimmicks, they were doing so while spending Ted Turner's money on like all of the talent. Every wrestler from WWE and like other promotions that were like ultra famous took a huge WCW paycheck in the, its last couple of years. Like they were just throwing money around at like every legend in the business. And it was really fun to watch <laughs> them like burn to the ground. Nice. Okay. So if fans were mad though, at like David Arquette winning the championship, we also watched the match two weeks later where he loses it in this like three tier cage match setup, which I think is like the height of Vince Russo bullshit. Like what's great about him was he would come up with these like absurd concepts for matches. I think the three so, like, tier thing is awesome, by the way. Like I wish they great. would do another one of those. <laughs> they call it the ready to rumble cage match. Now I don't remember, but was the, the three tier in this match. And I might be getting it confused with an- the one in the movie. Maybe was that the, this, the one with the guitar room. Yes. That like nobody really went into except for like a hot second <laughs> to grab a guitar and smash it over someone's head. So, on the bottom tier, you have this giant regular size cage match. And then you crawl up to a smaller cage, like pyramid style. So like there's less room to hide. And that's the hardcore room where there's like tables and trash can lids and things you can smash over people's heads. And then you crawl up to an even smaller room and it's just full of prop guitars. (laughs) And they smash them over each other's heads. And I've never seen this match style outside of the ready to rumble movie. So like, this is a direct tie in still trying to promote this movie. That's flopping in theaters when this came out, but it works. Like it's a really fun. It's awesome. Yeah. It's great. And the match, I think is a even better use of Arquette's like persona as a Hollywood outsider. He's like this like coward who hides from getting in any real scuffs during it. He lets DDP do all the work even though he comes out in this like flashy, like Vegas Elvis impersonator style outfit, he like is all flash, but no substance. And then like double crosses DDP at the last second so that the heel wins the match. And then everyone in the arena boos him. And to me, that is like wrapping up a great couple weeks run for him as a outsider who had the belt. He's a worm. He's useless. He's a double crosser. He's a terrible athlete. He should not have been there. And the crowd boos him. And that's like fun as fuck and great wrestling booking. Yeah, I feel like they had to, right? Like initially, 
he was basically booked as like a good guy that somehow came into being champion. And then I think once the crowd reaction set in, they're like, oh shit, like only thing we can do is turn him heel, which was smart. And I think it does work in the context of this little, like, you know, like you said, two, three week story. So Brittany, you don't really watch a lot of like full length wrestling matches. And we did ask you to watch both of these. What do you feel about like the storytelling of like David Arquette's like rise to the championship and then like his like final hurrah before the belt changes hands? The way I kind of like looked at it was everyone was obviously pissed off at the win. And then he, there was like this weird sadness to him in that um, where he like loses the belts in that second um, three tiered battle. I didn't know if it was part of his character or if it was like really. And I think it's because I watched the movie we're going to talk about next before or the documentary where I like realized he was like a really big wrestling fan, like a true fan that he maybe he felt some like remorse for what he did. And it just seems like he lost a little bit of his like that was kind of like getting him through. Well, it's worth noting that he begged them not to do it. He said, I do not want to become champion. People will hate me for it. Right. And Russo said, we're doing it anyway. From what I was reading, it started as like a joke. I forget who it was in production. They're like, wouldn't it be great? We just like gave the title to David Arquette. And then Vince (laughs) Russo heard that. He's like, oh my God, that's it. That's the idea. And then, yeah, Arquette was like, please no. I don't want to do this. But again, he was such a huge fan. And I could understand too, like, well, shit, they're going to let me be champion for a few weeks. I'm a huge wrestling fan. I love the business. I'll do whatever they ask me to do. And it sucks that it backfired on him so bad. It was not David Arquette's fault that this happened. Exactly. And it, it's to me, it was very sad because this was sort of like the end of you know his career in acting because nobody wanted him after he pulled that shit and like everyone in the wrestling world hated him and he was just kind of doing what he was told you know like just kind of blows and he's like an everyman kind of character in this where like because he's a fan like he can't say no to the opportunity of like getting the belt on screen like what wrestling mark would say no to that like right. i want to be on screen holding that belt like every true wrestling nerd like dreams of that moment and reenacts it in their like living room, like a little kid, you know? So like probably the best day of his life in some ways. And also the day that like ruined his life for the next couple decades, uh, as we'll see in the documentary that followed up this storyline and sort of wraps it up. Tragic. Yeah. It's horribly sad. And I didn't know any of it until a few nights ago. David, come on. You, you, you could get hurt. You could get killed. This is ridiculous. I know. I just wish this belt fit a little better. Yeah, I bet you do. But you know why it doesn't? You're not a wrestler. Now, baby, is that any way to talk to the heavyweight champion of the world? Oh, good God. <laughs> so the reason I was thinking about doing this episode now of all times is because there's a new documentary out called you cannot kill David Arquette that sort of ties up this whole saga in a bow. It covers David Arquette's initial 
run as the WCW World Heavyweight Champion in the year 2000 and follows up a recent update to that brief career as a pro wrestler. In the past couple of years, David Arquette has returned to the wrestling ring and the way in the year 2000 he started at the top as a celebrity who was sort of handed the belt and in the two decades since has been sort of a punchline and like treated like trash by the fans who have been like angry that he was just sort of like gifted this opportunity where like most wrestlers earn their way up last year in 2019, especially David Arquette, like worked his ass off to start over again from the bottom. This documentary follows him almost as like a performance art kind of project. Like I'm going to do wrestling for real this time. And he starts like doing backyard wrestling stunts with this like magician character. He comes up with, which is like a, um, sort of like a jokey, like Hollywood asshole, like walking into, um, real wrestling nerd circles. So he's like entering as a heel this time. Like you're supposed to boo him for his stupid magic tricks and for being like an, a celebrity actor, you know? And he works his way up doing like backyard wrestling stunts and these like bullshit promotions to like real in the ring training with people who, you know, train wrestlers as a profession. Uh, he goes down to Mexico and learns like Lucha style for a few weeks and like earns the respect of like luchadors and then, you know, goes through the indie circuit this time um, resulting, I think in like the biggest attention grabbing like headline match was this really horrific death match where he took a um, fluorescent light bulb to the neck and almost bled to death in the ring, which was really fucking hard to watch. I fucking hate death matches. We can get into how gross that is. But basically the story in the movie is a continuation of one of my favorite pro wrestling movies, which is Andy Kaufman's I'm from Hollywood, where it like mixes reality and fiction a little bit. It's hard to tell what's staged in this movie and what's like legitimate. When he's bleeding to death out of his neck, that looks pretty fucking legitimate. But when he's like in a backyard promotion in the middle of nowhere in the American South and he's like, I didn't know this was someone's backyard. I thought this was a real wrestling match. Like that seems like a little fake. So the movie's playing with that like reality fiction divide in a way that like it becomes a wrestling angle in itself. Like it is telling the story of David Arquette earning his dues in a way that he did not the first time he was a wrestler. And I got to say, I was shocked watching this to find it. One of the best movies I've seen this year. (laughs) And I, uh, I'm curious how y'all feel about it. Brandon, I absolutely agree with you. This was definitely my favorite documentary I've seen this year. And most definitely going to be in my top 10. Hell yeah. Movies. Because I think you hit the nail on the head with the whole, okay, it's a documentary. You know, I was talking earlier about how Ready to Rumble did not respect kayfabe in a certain way. This illusion of reality, like this documentary, this is what I'm talking about. That blurring of the line between, I don't know if this is real or not. Am I being worked? But whatever, I'm along for the storyline. Like this documentary actually gets it truly what it means to be a wrestling fan. Like I can suspend disbelief if the story is good. And in that way, Ready to Rumble did not give it that same respect. And I've actually found it like moving and transcendent in certain parts, (laughs) which is odd to say. Well, yeah, like he has um, a lot of emotional 
baggage with like his family, his ex-wife, Courtney Cox, comments <laughs> on it. cannot believe she's in this movie. It's great. And his new <laughs> wife looks just like her. Yeah, that's um, weird. And she's also terrified for him. Um, his buddy, Luke Perry, saves his life during some part, which is like tough because Luke Perry died before this movie Who, came out. I did not know that his son is Jungle Boy, who's in AEW right now like that blew me away and the match he does with jungle boy to honor jungle boy's father is oh, like really I like, touching I cried for that match yeah <laughs> so it it just like it gets it and like i know that you know david arquette gets wrestling and that's the main thing that came out to me was like oh wow he gets like how to work an audience i don't care if this is like a hundred percent authentic or real it's the story you're telling and it's telling his redemption story. Yeah. I I thought it was just fucking fantastic. How do you feel, Brittany? I loved it. Um, And just coming from, you know, not knowing anything or even knowing that David Arquette had anything to do with wrestling. I was just this whole treasure trove of David Arquette and wrestling has just been blowing me away. Like at first, like I was trying to figure out like if he was using this like documentary to kind of boost his career, I guess I kind of got that feeling at the beginning where I'm like, okay, like here's just like a, a rich, like, you know, privileged Hollywood guy that's already loaded. That's just trying to get back into acting to make more money. You know, I don't know. I, I, I went on, I came in with that attitude and the more I watched it, I really felt for him and after, you know, finding out, like, he is, like, severely depressed. I mean, they're pumping him up with ketamine on camera. And it's not glamorous. Like, it's no, kind of pathetic. horrific. And they're, like, showing his brain, going through his brain and his brain damage and um, going through, like, his alcoholism, his, you know, the fact that he's had a heart attack. He's on blood thinners. So he, you know, should not be cut or wrestling in any capacity and he's got like two stents i mean it, i was just like what is going on and i mean he was all... also basically raised in a cult <laughs> right in a commune that cult. whole family is completely wacky and his like sister um alexis's art is like in the background and she can't comment on his life but his other two sisters are there which like kind of hit me in the feels yeah it was sweet like patricia arquette i thought it was just so lovely in this documentary and she just felt like such a, a great supportive sister. It was touching. And, you know, seeing him with his family and especially like his wife, like, you know, Courtney Cox, number two, like. <laughs> she looks so much like her. <laughs> yeah. Like he obviously has a type, but like this woman, it was like, just seems so supportive of him. And like, God knows, could you imagine like raising kids? for this guy while he's going through all this shit, plus trying to like pay his dues in the wrestling world. I, I don't know. I commend, I commend her. <laughs> and for what? Like the fans hate him from this like angle from 20 years ago. They obviously don't deserve this. Like he's trying to prove that he's not like a vapid goofball to these idiots who don't deserve the effort. Right. And there is a little bit of what you were saying earlier about like, you know, he is a millionaire. Like you can't feel that bad for him, especially like scenes where he's like dressed like a wizard, like riding around this horse on his like ranch that he owns. Like, yeah, his life isn't that bad. 
but he's obviously stuck on this idea of not being respected um, ever since he played Deputy Dewey in the Scream movies. <laughs> like, Gosh. he wants people to see him as, like, a intelligent, talented person, which he obviously is. Right. And they And they bring that up a lot where they're like, you know, he was in this time period where he w- would have potentially gone on to achieve like these serious roles that all these other guys in his, you know, in his group got like, I guess like, I don't know who they're referencing, like Ben Affleck or Brad Pitt or Brad Pitt types and stuff like that. And I'm like, eh, I mean, I don't think so, (laughs) but I mean, maybe potentially it's hard to tell. Like he, he got typecast in movies where he plays a shit sucker who like, (laughs) <laughs> travels the uh, country trying to get his favorite wrestler back in the ring. He, we don't really know what his dramatic acting chops are. True, uh, but, true. But the movie does tell a good story in that respect, which I think is the most important part. Like, talking about like the Drew McIntyre-Roman Reigns angle again, Like this is a long-term storytelling angle that is great for a wrestling documentary where like he starts on the bottom where you do not have respect for him. He like puts a lot of his body and his like prestige on the line. Like he could lose jobs over doing this like ridiculous wrestling angle even now. And he like actually legitimately puts his heart into it. He achieves a kind of high earning respect for himself. And then he suffers this like horrific blow to his health where he like almost dies in the ring. And I think the pivotal moment is when he takes this like fluorescent light bulb to the throat and it like recognizes that he's bleeding to death in front of a crowd and he walks away from the match like fuck you I can't believe you just cut me open like that in front of all these people and then he decides stubbornly to go back to the ring to finish the match and gets tapped out and then he leaves again and gets rushed to the hospital and gets his life saved with Luke Perry (laughs) yeah Luke Perry saves his life good god you cannot script that. It's so absurd. Um, and then the next few months, he hits rock bottom and like loses all of like the professional and like personal progress he's made over the course of the movie. And then you get the final like upswing at the end where he like gets his shit back together and like legitimately works on the indie circuit a little bit and like does a couple legitimate matches as a heel and like earns the respect of the fans again. And that is great wrestling booking. Like this movie tells a great angle and I think like captures what wrestling storytelling feels like where you like cheer someone on when they succeed in the ring. I mean, if you think back to his whole, this whole arc, even going back to ready to rumble and to him winning the WCW championship and then this documentary, it is a beautiful wrestling arc giving this uh, celebrity that doesn't really want the championship, but they reluctantly take it. Then it ends up destroying their career, but they love the sport of wrestling. And so a decade goes by and they want to like gain that legitimacy and they work from the bottom and then they get to the top and then they get this horrific injury, hit rock bottom again, come back strong. And then I was reading on some online Wrestling forums were like the hardcore fans are like David Arquette is legitimately a good wrestler. Like what happened? Like he's actually won over the Smarks. I hate that he had to almost die to win them over though. Like fuck them. They do not deserve that. Well, I I don't think it was so much from him almost dying. Just like his actual wrestling ability. 
Because that's what he's good. That's what took me back. Like when he's in Mexico and he does some of those hurricane ranas, you know, and he's jumping off the turnbuckle, doing these big splashes. I'm like, oh my god! Like, dude can actually wrestle, and he's like 45. You know what's great storytelling is that scene in Mexico City where they're at the red light, like I the skate lane that. highway. Oh, my, yeah. does that like I was? I want to see that. That's fantastic. I've never seen that before. But like the red light is like a long wait, like it's like two minutes before you get a green light. So these performers go out and put on these like one minute matches in the intersection to entertain people who are stuck at the light, and then spend the second minute collecting tips. Which and is he like kind of does it <laughs> the first round as like a jokey, like, oh, look at me out here, kind of hamming it up. And they like kind of look down on him like, you know, this you're actually cutting into our profits. Like we need this money to live. And then as that cycle goes on, like through a few more red lights, he sort of like gets it and like actually genuinely performs for the uh, the people waiting for the green light and like earns the tips and earns the respect of the luchadors. It's like really mm-hmm. moving. That's where it picked up for me where I was like, oh my God, this is fabulous. Like it's whenever all the cars started honking their horns for him, like an applause. Yeah. <laughs> and then like he develops that great bond with like the luchador crew. And I don't know. I just, there were two big moments for me. That was one, like that match they had on the like concrete, where they're spinning each other around and jumping off of ladders and crazy shit, like just on the pavement was so insane. inspiring and insane. So that was like a big highlight for me. But I would say also um, there's a scene where him and his opponent, they're backstage and they're going through their match. And, you know, they're like, I'm going to throw you in the turnbuckle over here. And then you're going to, give me an elbow and I'm going to jump off of here and you're going to catch me. And they're very animated sort of going through the ins and outs of the story they're going to tell in the ring. I thought that was so beautiful because that is what wrestling is. Like when you think about any big superstar match, if it's at WrestleMania or whatever, like that's what it is. They sit in a room with a booker you know, that's telling them, here's how we want the match to end. And they're sort of animatedly going through the ins and outs of the story they want to tell. Like that really honed in on the artistry of wrestling. Yeah. That's something that like is majorly highlighted in Aronofsky's The Wrestler, which is arguably the greatest wrestling film of all time. Yeah. And just like on a personal, it brought me back because like growing up, you know, I, I started watching wrestling when I was eight or nine years old and have watched it pretty much consistently through my entire life. And yeah, when I was a teenager, me and my stepbrother, we did the backyard wrestling thing. We had a trampoline and we had those, those exact moments where like, even if it was just for like an audience of zero and just like a camcorder, you know, we were so excited about, wrestling and we're like talking about oh you're gonna give me a ddt off of the trampoline onto the ground and then you're gonna put me through a table and i'm gonna come back and i'm gonna power bomb you and this and that and like it honestly like made me tear up a little bit because i think where i really identify with david arquette anyone that truly loved wrestling when they were a kid and who had 
any idea of, man, I like, maybe I want to be a wrestler one day. Wouldn't it be great to be in the ring and put on a match in front of any audience? It doesn't matter. Like I had that in me too. And then obviously, you know, like shit happens. You go to college, you get a job and, but it's always in the back of your head. And the fact that I could see that in David Arquette too, like he actually loves it. It's in his head. I want to be a wrestler. That's a dream. Even if it's on the small indie level. And the fact that he did it, like, as a 45-year-old man, like, he worked his ass off, and he, you know, put on some matches in front of an audience, and he fulfilled his dream, like, that to me is pretty inspiring. And that's why I liken it to um, Andy Kaufman and I'm from Hollywood. It was the same vibe, like, he's obviously like a huge fan of wrestling as an art form, and the documentary, that one even more so is, like, not even close to being reality. It's, it's definitely just an angle. Um, but it's like documenting this like project where he's like, I'm going to do this the real way and perform this like actual real life prank, more or less. This has more real life consequences than the Andy Kaufman was does, but it, it does mimic a lot of the same motions. It's like, well, I am a millionaire actor from Hollywood, so how can I authentically engage with this art form that I'm not allowed to be authentic in? Um, and they both found a way and they turned it into, they turned the movies themselves into wrestling angles and like really get you involved in the emotional upswell of their like story as actors trying to become legitimate in the ring. And I would say, especially to Brittany, like if you are into the way this story is told, like this is what good wrestling storytelling is like this, like a good long-term story like this would normally take six months to a year to (laughs) unfold in the screen. And you can kind of see that in the movie. Like it takes a long time to tell that story. It's not like he just did this in a couple, in two weeks, the way he did the first time he won the belt. But this is like what good wrestling storytelling is. And like, when you get invested in a story like this and it like pays off, like it's very like emotionally satisfying. Well, yeah, I'm I'm excited to delve into the wrestling world a little more. Thanks, David Arquette. <laughs> um, but something I want to mention, like, yes, this this documentary is totally about um, his, you know, resurface into wrestling. But something I also found from watching this is that this documentary got me interested in like who David Arquette is as well, because this guy is such a big weirdo. I love how the documentary kind of peeks into that. Like there are just these bizarre little things that happen in his world that we're seeing on camera. Like when he's kind of talking about, you know, his childhood and all that good stuff at his house, like he has like a 10 foot tennis racket and like a basketball sized tennis ball. (laughs) And then he goes to sit in this gigantic oversized, like wooden chair to like contemplate his thoughts. <laughs> He's like a little kid who never grew up. Oh my God. I was dying at all that. Like it was just awesome. And then like, um, you know, like the goofy photo shoots that he had with his like costumes while he's like ramping things up. And I don't know. I'm just like, wow. Like I knew David Arquette like played weird roles and was like a goofy kind of character. But this guy is, He's like a, a weirdo in a in a cool way too. So um Yeah, I think that like 
angle he does where he dresses up like a magician and kind of gets laughed at. Like, what are you doing here in this like legitimate wrestling circle? Was a very smart choice. Whenever, right. Whenever I love that back. I love backyard wrestling. I watch a lot more backyard wrestling videos than like real wrestling, (laughs) not real wrestling, but like, you know, WWE wrestling videos. But when he's having that backyard wrestling match and he's doing this like magic trick where the stick is getting bigger and bigger and he like cracks it on that kid's head. (laughs) The kid just like punches him in the face. Annihilates him. Oh my God. It's fabulous. And then they have that guy, that huge guy with like the Slayer shirt. And I'm like, his stint is going to pop out of his chest. I mean, (laughs) well, I love to, that the promoter of that backyard wrestling thing says to some extent, like, yeah, David Arquette got the real wrestling experience. You know, he showed up to our thing and like, I didn't pay him and he had to deal with like a shitty promoter, which is like exactly what I think working on the indie level is like. It's like totally a carny business. Yeah. Carney business. Like, Oh, this guy said he was going to pay me and he didn't. And there were no fans there. And I just like got my ass whooped for nothing. So he really and does start from that on the purpose bu- too, course, right? Like there's, yeah. th- that is an angle like that. He is like, Oh, I didn't know I was walking into someone's backyard. Like he has people looking into that. Of course. Well, of course. But also he's like potentially wasted too. <laughs> so I was like, well, maybe, True. I don't know. He might, they might've told him that for weeks and he never picked up on it. Yeah. This is also an addiction story on top of, all the other things he's dealing with, which just adds to the pathos of it as like a storytelling. Right. Narrative. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, like the fact that he like relapses too, as he's going through this, cause you kind of think like, Oh, this is going to save his life. Like, no, it doesn't. I, I do get the sense that him and his wife were more in control of this narrative than we yeah. maybe imagine. And I think that's, that goes into the, the wrestling kind of mindset where isn't she like a journalist yeah and i i think some of this stuff you know oh he hit rock bottom he he relapsed and and some of the other events like doing the ketamine some of that seems a little hammed up for the sake of the story and it does feel like kind of i know we talked about this with the last episode like post-truth but it's like a post-truth documentary where I think we are getting worked a little bit to use a wrestling term, but I actually don't mind it in this sense. Cause that is what wrestling is about. And it, it doesn't feel entirely untrue. Like it feels like it's coming from a true place. It's just hammed up right. and amplified and to tell a better story. That's all that matters. So yeah, I'm glad y'all liked this as much as I did. I was honestly shocked and like, especially comparing it to an episode we did earlier. Um, we watched this movie scream queen that like, you know, in a similar way, looked back at this like embarrassing 1980s movie that like kind of ruined the career of this actor. That movie is like interesting and provides new context to this like Nightmare on Elm Street sequel that's kind of been long been made fun of, but it's not as good of a movie as this. Like this movie is like fast paced. The editing is really fun. It tells like a very shocking and like emotionally involving story. I thought the music was good too. And like some of it, some of the moments were truly like 
transcending. And I was very surprised by this. This was a great recommendation, Brandon. Yeah. After I watched it, I just like called like, you know, the five people I know. And I was like, do y'all know that David Arquette was a wrestler? <laughs> like, do you know all this stuff? Like, I was just, I'm, I'm still kind of like on a weird like high from learning all of this. Like, I feel like I'm still riding the David Arquette wrestling wave, you know? Do you think you would have enjoyed it as much without watching Ready to Rumble and those two matches we watched from the, from the year 2000? Like, do you think the movie does a good job of telling that story without you having to have seen all that background info? Yeah, I think it does. It provides you with all the information that you need to like be in the know. But I think it helps so much watching Ready to Rumble as well as like delving into some of those matches to kind of really grasp the seriousness of it and like being in that time when all this happened. Like I really felt like I was in the year 2000, you know? <laughs> you got your Jinkos on. Jinkos on, got a couple of chains hanging from it. Everything's heavy and soggy. Cause Spike it's, collar. Yes, yes. And, you know, Limp Biscuit blaring in the background. But yeah, like it really puts you... In that time, and it, it really helps to kind of have that knowledge and that sort of like inside scoop before going into this documentary. But I think if somebody were to just be like, what the hell is this documentary about and start watching it, it does a great job of providing you with like what you need to like go on that journey. For me, I think, you know, because I was a fan at the time, it was more of a nostalgia trip. Like when I watched that three-tier cage match. I actually remember being at my friend Joey's house and like his parents let us rent the pay-per-view and there were actually memories hinged to that moment that, you know, it's always good to feel nostalgic sometimes. And it's good to know that you have like fond memories of having seen David Arquette wrestle in the past. Like a lot of people remember so him jealous. winning the belts, but not necessarily like all the other things they did with that angle. I, I do think that like three tier cage match is like actually really good. It's pure spectacle. Like that's the only thing I remember was like, wow, this is a spectacle as like a, you know, 13 year old, 14 year old kid. That's mostly what I remember. I wasn't even thinking about, oh, this is a Hollywood actor. That's the champion. This is bullshit. It was just like, wow, there's three cages on top of each other. This is <laughs> there's and the so many guitars, <laughs> right? This, and the top one's this, full of guitars. Yeah. I mean, so I guess maybe the bar is low, but like I was very entertained as a child by that match. So also worth noting before we move on, like DDP's involvement in all this stuff is also very involving to me to watch all these together to see Diamond Dallas Page so down for everything they ask him to do. Like, he plays a villain in Ready to Rumble with Gusto. He puts over this, like, celebrity actor in these, like, tag matches, even though that's, like, his career that's on the line. But he does it, like, enthusiastically. And then in the documentary, if anyone follows his career, he's, like, been doing this, like, sort of, like, guru yoga type. Whoa almost like Buddhist persona recently. And in the film, like David Arquette makes this sort of like religious trek out to see DDP in the wild. And he's like doing his like yoga poses under a waterfall and is like very Zen and like very forgiving about Arquette's place in the pro wrestling business and stuff. And I think he is like a hero in this story that um, 
does a lot of work to put over Arquette in general, deserves to be acknowledged for all that. What a team player. Well, and also he's kind of an interesting character in that he didn't actually get involved in wrestling till he was like in his mid thirties. Amazing. Like, Oh wow. Most guys now start out very, very young, but he like did other like kind of odd jobs and then kind of fell into wrestling when he was like 34 James, it's never too late. You could be the next DDP. Yeah, but that guy's like six foot five and has a very uh, charismatic quality about him. So he's the most muscular (laughs) physique I've ever seen in yoga poses. Like his like athletic yoga stuff is like a visual feast. (laughs) Oh, I love watching that because there is a housewife husband um, who like is into that kind of stuff. And he would, he's ripped and he does all these splits and stuff and just kind of meditates in a split. Um, So I've been fascinated with watching like these like giant men. (laughs) Yeah. Do like yoga. By all accounts though, like he is through DDP yoga helped a lot of guys, not only like with yoga, but like dealing with substance abuse issues and, He's like wow. apparently all around like a great human being that wants to help fellow wrestlers that are struggling. So yeah, definitely shout out to DDP. This is a pro Diamond Dallas Page podcast. <laughs> definitely. So was he really going through a divorce in that fight with um his ex-wife as the referee? <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. Is that real or not? Because I was like, wow. I'm like, look at his like commitment. <laughs> I don't know if they were real life married or in ring married, kayfabe married. I have no idea. Oh God, there's kayfabe marriages. <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh my God. People get married in the ring all the time, especially in the nineties and two thousands. Wow, man. I'm excited to start exploring all of this garbage that I think I'll love. <laughs> well, I definitely recommend you watch WWE total divas. Uh, the, middle ground between what we've been talking about and real housewives because that is the exact overlap there i started Um, is that about the twins yes the bella twins yeah bella twins okay i kind of started watching it and then like john cena seems to be like a very controlling husband oh yeah he's a psychopath in that show yeah so i kind of stopped watching it because i'm like no i want to love you but i'll keep watching it because now i'm into wrestling and yeah you're right. It is a great crossover. <laughs> that's that's a good baby step. <laughs> baby steps. <laughs> I'll also link in the show notes to the show something that went terribly, but I made everyone watch uh, one of my favorite wrestling movies, which is Monster Brawl uh, this past October. Oh, um, on, everyone hates it. That's fine. But I did write a lot about how WWE dealt with COVID era programming and how they've like moved more towards like cinematic matches this year. So I, I'm going to link to that one last time. Just if you want to just read about what wrestling is like right now, as well as a movie that no one else liked um, besides me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, next week we will be watching a movie from this year that Brittany enjoyed that I have not seen yet called the other lamb, which is a cult horror film on Hulu. Uh, So I'm excited to see what that's about because I've not seen it yet. And all I'll leave you with on the way out is that You Cannot Kill David Arquette is one of the most surprisingly rewarding movies from this year. Yeah. Agreed. I can't believe he survived everything. So I don't know if he can die. 
Yeah. Is he invincible? Seems like it. Kind of. Yeah. He can bleed profusely out of his neck and still walk away. While on blood thinners. (laughs) Amazing. Just (laughs) just don't agree to a death match with Nick Gage. This is a bad idea. I do not find death matches cute at all. I think they're like the lowest common denominator in the art form. It's basically like the torture porn of wrestling. And I know some people kind of get off on that. I, I can't really vibe with it. So I, agree. I can't even watch ultimate fighting. Like I, I, of course I can't watch that. Like the point of wrestling is to imitate violence and not like actually perform it. Like what's the point? I think the people that the performers that are into it, they actually do kind of get off on it a little bit, pushing their bodies to the limit pain wise. I don't know. There is like an S and M vibe to that match. <laughs> yeah. That's a topic for another day. Yeah, we'll do a deathmatch episode. Ugh. No, I'm, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. We'll, we'll talk to y'all next week. Okie dokie. Bye. Bye. Bye.